0: Hackbox talk and this is horse stories with a purpose who are we we are equine educators but we are owners we are judges we are competitors we are coaches we are volunteers we are moms we are horse owners just like you and we want to share our horse stories with a purpose extension horses tack box talk series horse stories with a purpose I'm your host Dr. Chris Heine with Oklahoma State University and our special guest today is Dr. Angela Pelzel-McCluskey who is a veterinarian with USD APHIS and so that is the animal plant health inspection service branch of USDA Uh, and so Dr. Pelzel-McCluskey is an equine epidemiologist essentially is that correct
1: that's correct Chris
0: So, well, welcome to the program. I'm excited to have you with us, but we're actually gonna be talking about a recent disease outbreak that is affecting horse owners um, and other animals as well, but that is vesicular stomatitis. So could you at least um, give us a little bit of layout about what states are affected and what's going on?
1: Sure, Chris. So we have incursions into the United States of vesicular stomatitis every few years, and the disease comes up from Mexico And it's spread by biting fly populations. And so it typically starts south in the southwestern U.S. and it moves upward, um, usually into the Rocky Mountain states. But this year, we actually had spread into some Midwestern states. So right now, our hottest spot, I would say, is Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. The junction of those three states right now seems to be a hot spot for our vesicular stomatitis
0: outbreak. So it's more than just uh, me here in Oklahoma that need to be worrying about it. It's actually in quite a few states this year.
1: That's correct. Actually, so far in 2020, we've had a total of seven states involved. Um, While Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma are most affected right now, um, the outbreak did start in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona and spread northward. So um, we have had problems in those states as well earlier on in the season, and, and they've since gone cold with the virus.
0: So is there any reason or certain conditions for 2020 other than it's 2020 and why not add another virus on?
1: Yeah, there are. So when we uh, have climate factors that favor the vector populations, and the vectors we're talking about that spread this virus are black flies, sand flies, and biting midges, which are helicoide species. And we have those species of biting flies pretty much everywhere in the U.S. Um, but we, when we have select populations that explode with those vectors, and the vectors are really active, um, that tends to help spread the disease further and farther than we expect.
0: It's kind of been a pretty typical year. It hasn't been super dry or super hot. Uh, just, is that just perfect then for the biting midges?
1: Well, we have an ongoing research project, Chris, that is looking at all the different climate factors that are associated with supporting these vectors. And we have over 740 different variables that actually, in the climate, that actually affect whether or not these vectors explode or don't explode and whether or not they're capable of spreading the virus. So it's very intricate and it's very complicated, all these different factors. You and I would talk about climate in the form of Humidity and heat and rainfall and that sort of thing, but these climatologists talk in these hundreds of other variables that, quite honestly, I don't have a good scope for, but they have a lot of effect on the vectors. And so we have many, many different variables that are causing this to happen in certain parts of the country.
0: Okay, so we're not going to figure it out or go through 756 of them (laughs) today. (laughs) Uh, But that's why we do have some podcasts on insect control. So I definitely encourage listeners to check those out. We actually uh, did one with a a veterinary uh, entomologist the other day. So we have some good information for listeners on insect control. But let's talk about uh, vesicular stomatitis. So it's a reportable disease um, and one that, that we have a fairly high level of concern about. So I guess... Maybe just give us a breakdown for those that aren't familiar with vesicular stomatitis, what the disease is and maybe why it's a reportable disease.
1: Sure, so like I said, this is caused by a virus and spread by those biting flies. And the virus causes um, vesicular lesions and vesicular lesions are just blisters that form in certain areas of the horse or the cow. And quite honestly, these lesions just look like Sort of blown up blisters and they, they expand across the muzzle, across the lips, sometimes they get to the tongue and you can get sloughing tongues. Um, they also form on the sheath or udder of the animal and the coronary band, which can cause some lameness in some of the animals. We also occasionally see ear lesions, so depending on where the vector is biting and transmitting the virus, if the vector likes to feed in that animal's ears, we also see ear lesions, and they end up in these crusting, oozing sort of lesions after those vesicles rupture, um, and that's what most people see is this crusty, oozing lesion in any of those locations, and that's when you're expected to go ahead and call your veterinarian, work with them to, to report it, and let's test and make sure that that is either is or isn't vesicular.
0: So, for the average horse owner is it going to be readily apparent uh, because just plain old gnat irritation can get their ears kind of crusty is it going to look um, significantly different from what you normally see with the crusting on the ears
1: yeah it's usually pretty severe chris and in fact what most people notice first are the muzzle or oral or tongue lesions because the horse will probably stop eating and be very uncomfortable eating and drinking. And sometimes they do a lot of drooling, especially from the sloughing tongue lesions. It's quite painful. So a lot of people may first just see that the horse isn't eating properly or is drooling. um, And then they start to notice the lesions in other locations in the herd. So if you see any of those signs, again, as it's a reportable disease, we really want
0: to contact your veterinarian immediately.
1: That's correct. And your veterinarian will know how to call that in to state and federal animal health officials and also what samples to take so that we can get your horse tested. Okay. So, um, vesicular stomatitis is
0: primarily found with horses, but it can be in other species. So what other species do we see it show up in?
1: Yeah. So, so far we have nine affected cattle premises this year where the horses are not affected, but the cows are. So I would say horses is the primary species that usually get the disease, followed by cattle. It also happens in swine. Um, And we've also seen lesions in the past in sheep and goats and camelids. Camelids being llamas and alpacas are also susceptible. Do we ever see it in our donkeys as well? We do. I have donkey cases and mule cases, so it does not discriminate among the equid species.
0: Now, it's not super common, but it can be transmitted to people as well. So how is a human going to pick it up? Is it through the insects or is it through handling the animals?
1: It's through handling the infected animals, and it's not as uncommon as you would think. I think the textbooks say that it's rare, but I will tell you that I did get this disease from a horse in 2004. Um, when he blew it right in my face. Um, So I don't recommend it. It's a flu-like illness, but uh, it was really horrible. And I think in the time of COVID-19, it could easily get misinterpreted. It usually is characterized by a high fever in people, uh, severe fatigue, and body aches. So personally, I had 104 fever for three days, and I was flat out and unable to lift my arms without pain. So um, usually, it's self-limiting. Uh, within three to five days in the, in the humans, it goes away. Um, but you want to be really careful that horses with lesions, you are staying out from in front of their face because they are, with the oral lesions, slobbering and spitting and snorting quite a bit because they're uncomfortable. Um, and you want to wash your hands or wear gloves or both because um, we don't want this to get on you. Um, on your face or your hands. And certainly that virus does live on some surfaces for a short period of time. So just be careful if you're handling lesioned animals. Wow. So all of that advice we
0: give people about COVID kind of use with the horses, but the extra, please don't stand and let them <laughs> get get on you, but really, really good hygiene. Stay,
1: yep. Stay out from in front of the face. That was my mistake. I was trying to sample a lesion and in the mouth and I got I got it snorted all over me. It was A bad deal.
0: So is there any uh, concern for our veterinary population? Um, Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking there's so much going on right now, and they're going to be needing to go out and test for this, um, that they're at a higher risk.
1: They are. So we instruct all of our veterinarians, they need to wear gloves and they need to change their clothes, wash their hands, change their shoes, all of that, and be very careful as they're moving from premises to premises in an outbreak region. And they get very good at it. Um, And most of the time they're protected just with the most basic uh, personal protective equipment that they employ to handle those animals. But we do try to get that message across. It is dangerous to veterinarians that are handling lesioned animals and also to owners that are handling lesioned animals when the veterinarian departs.
0: Yeah. And I just know, you know, for, for me instinctively, if I see something's wrong with my animal, if, you know, if they're looking a little off feed, I go through my whole physical exam with them as that's what I always train people to do. Right. And so that means I am chugging mucous membranes and I'm doing all of those normal practices. So is that, is that still advised? (laughs) Or you know, if I see something else that would kind of clue me in, um, Sure.
1: Yeah, it is still advised that you do your physical exam like you would, but just be sure to wear some gloves and take a little precaution. Um, Keep your keep your face out from in front of the horse, especially if it's slobbering or you see some oral lesions Um, and just slow down a little bit. Take your time, but wear your gloves. And when you're done handling that animal and you go in to call your veterinarian, go ahead and wash your hands before you make that call.
0: That's really, really good
1: advice. (laughs) So so for horse
0: owners, how severe, and certainly if there's any cattle owners listening to, or all of our other species that are affected, how severe of a disease is this for the animal?
1: Um, How long is it gonna take them to recover? Any long-term effects? So fortunately, the disease is usually self-limiting in most horses, which is great. It means they're gonna heal on their own and it's usually not very impactful, um, except when we are dealing with maybe older horses or horses with underlying medical conditions. Um, with the oral lesions specifically and the sloughing tongue, those may take a couple of weeks to heal. And if the horse is uncomfortable eating, you might have to make the horse a bran mash or something that they can eat more comfortably so that we get the nutrition into them. Um, we also want to make sure that they're drinking properly. So some older horses, especially with oral lesions, may be uncomfortable enough that they don't drink. And we may need to give some IV fluids in those, in those situations. But most horses heal on their own. Um, with no long-term effects, um, the lesions heal quite well. Um, the coronary band lesions I've seen um, cause some lines to form on the hoof as the hoof is growing out, um, but so far we've not seen any long-term lameness issues associated with that, that physical marking um, as the hoof grows out. So I think that's all really good. Okay. So if the horses
0: um, primarily recover other than maybe, you know, these immunocompromised older horses or, you know, maybe just not as robust uh, health systems, what makes uh, vesicular stomatitis a reportable disease amongst all of the diseases that animals can get?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. So this is mainly a disease of trade ramifications internationally. It's not really a disease that we're so fearful is going to really harm the animals. Um, The reason why it's a trade associated disease is because these lesions, when they appear in cattle or species other than horses, can look just like foot and mouth disease. And you can't tell the difference visually, so we have to take samples to rule out foot and mouth disease in cattle and other ruminants and swine. Horses, of course, do not get foot and mouth disease. So that's a dead giveaway that these uh, vesicular lesions in horses cannot possibly be FMV, which is good. However, our trade partners are very critical of us making sure that we investigate every case of vesicular disease and make sure we do not have a foot and mouth disease problem going on, and to report cases of vesicular stomatitis outbreaks when it's happening so that they can limit trade to their countries, especially Canada. Um, Canada is not typically a country that gets vesicular stomatitis and they certainly don't want it. So we want to be very careful and restrict movement of horses, cattle and other hoofstock um, to Canada during an outbreak. And that's why it's reportable so that we can manage those quarantines and make sure we don't spread the disease to other countries.
0: Okay, so for horse owners, I think this is important to, to reemphasize this, uh, because a lot of times when people hear, okay, now I have to have all these extra health certificates, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, they think about it's more of a hassle and I'm not involved with trade, right? If I'm going to take my horse to a horse show, what does that have to do with trade in the economy? But it really does.
1: Correct. In fact, the interstate movement um, of horses in the U.S., as we know, is widespread and really heavy trade, right? We move horses interstate constantly all the time. And we don't wanna spread this disease to states that are historically unaffected with vesicular stomatitis. We wanna keep the virus and hold the virus where it likes to be until it dies out. We don't wanna spread it across the country. Um, Many years ago, we've had this disease in the US um, that we've known of since the Civil War times. And we didn't start controlling the movement of livestock relative to the disease until about the 1970s. And as a result, the disease was everywhere in the US, year after year after year, because we were allowing lesioned animals to move and the animals were spreading it to other animals in these other states. So we wanna avoid that situation and that's why each state that you go to, your destination state when you move during a vesicular stomatitis outbreak is going to have some specific requirements, maybe a shortened health certificate certainly a veterinary inspection to make sure your horse doesn't have lesions before it comes. And all of that is really important to keep us from spreading the disease further within the US where it doesn't belong.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna ask you uh, maybe a tough question or maybe a little charged question. So um, vesicular stomatitis has shown up in Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma is a a large horse show state that is a, a big part of our local economies, especially in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Uh, because we have big show facilities, a lot of the major horse shows take place here in Oklahoma. What does this mean for people that are interested in going to those horse shows?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and it's a bit of a challenge. Um, So we still do host shows and events, we just have to have a little more care, especially in the check-in process for horses entering the show grounds and the event grounds that are going to stay there and be monitored. So what most people do, and this has been very successful, is they'll have an on-site veterinarian at the show or the event that visually inspects and checks in every horse, in addition to reviewing their short and tell certificate that they've already been inspected back home and all of that. So this check-in process is going to ensure that we don't see any lesions on the animal as we check it in. And then the animals are going to be monitored throughout the show. Um, some events have Uh, chosen intricate ways to mark the horses. So in Colorado last year at a major roping event, um, I have pictures of horses that had a big green chalk V that was drawn right on their hindquarters to indicate that they had been checked in correctly for vesicular stomatitis and they were not lesioned. And that actually helped to immediately identify as you look around the showgrounds, who's been inspected and who might have tried to sneak in the back um, and should be reported for that action. So this works pretty well. Um, you know, our transmission at the showgrounds, we expect to be only by fly vectors. So everybody needs to be really careful and use their fly mitigation. You also need to protect your own horses from other horses there at the event. So use your biosecurity. You want to keep your group of horses together. You want to use all your own buckets and equipment. You don't want to share anything with other horse owners that are there. And again, this check-in process to make sure that the lesioned horses are not coming in is really important because the virus is in those lesions as well. And direct contact between horses that are lesioned and unlesioned can spread the disease.
0: Yeah, and I'll uh, reference our listeners. We have several um pretty good biosecurity webinars available on our YouTube channel, which I'll put in the show notes for uh, folks to check out. So the biosecurity is is pretty important. So when you are talking about Colorado and the rope horses, uh, I was just thinking, I don't think there's going to be big chalk lines on all the showmanship horses. I think the the exhibitors are going to frown on that. So,
1: that may be true. They might have to get more creative. Even a colored tag that you hang on your bridle for the event or whatever. Um, you know, people get creative, but there are ways that you can show everyone on a quick visual glance the horse has been checked in as clean and that you're safe.
0: So we definitely want uh, horse owners to know if you're traveling or showing within these effective uh, states now, rather than even just counties. So, and and we'll talk about that a bit, that they may have to be a bit more patient um, with the check-in process. And again, there's some real reasons for this. We're not trying to just slow everybody down, uh, but this has rather significant effects on our agriculture economy. Correct. So the, you talked about, you know, health certificates and veterinary inspection. So normally um, we typically have a health certificate that allows travel um, typically usually like 30 days or so uh, within travel. But now that window has been shortened down quite a bit. So maybe talk a little bit about what that procedure looks like.
1: Sure, so this is where it gets really confusing, Chris, because each state has its own requirements, right? So that makes a lot of confusion. What most states do is they will um, say that they need a shortened health certificate for you to enter that particular state. And by shortened, it'll be somewhere between three to seven days um, that you get your veterinary inspection and and that your veterinarian signs that CVI, that Certificate of Veterinary Inspection, your health papers. Um, it's got to be within that time window before you enter that new state. So instead of having 30 days to get there once your vet signs your health health certificate, you have a much shorter period of time to get your vet out, to get your animal examined, and to use that certificate appropriately. So that is a bit of stress. Uh, You have to plan ahead, and you have to communicate with your destination state and find out what are their specific requirements. Your veterinarian will do the same, but it doesn't hurt for you both to be on the same page about what those requirements are and also how you get back because your home state may have new requirements that you need to meet coming from another state. So you have to be really diligent and you have to um, investigate that uh, and, and plan ahead.
0: So our big horse shows, and again, we have a lot of these big major events here in Oklahoma where the horses are there for weeks, they have to be inspected to go home, is that correct?
1: They may, yes. That's why you have to, you have to plan ahead and make sure you know what will it take to get you home. Um, Our Canadian participants in many of these shows have a lot of trouble because they may not be allowed to go back to Canada, or they may have to get tested for vesicular stomatitis before they can go back. So all of this is really intricate and it's very complicated, but if you do your homework, you can actually do everything correctly.
0: Okay, so let's say I'm an owner, and I'm in Indiana, and I am hauling in for the youth world that starts uh, in a few days here in Oklahoma City. How do I know uh, where to find this information? I mean, give us what somebody does to figure out the rules.
1: Yep, so two things. First of all, you have to communicate with your local veterinarian as soon as possible when you know you're going to travel so that you can plan out your appointment to get your certificate of veterinary inspection and any other testing or requirements that need to be met. Where you find the information for your destination state is on the state veterinarian's website for your destination state. So this is the state animal health official in your destination state. And they all have websites and on their website, they will have two things. Most of them will post what their current requirements are relative to vesicular stomatitis right on their website. And if they don't, they all will have a contact phone number or email for you to call and or email and contact them directly and find out what are the specific requirements to enter right now.
0: So for an owner that's uh, thinking about this, I know when we have like outbreaks of EHV-1, um, we have a lot of shows canceled and things like that. And because this is not really a, a deadly disease it's certainly uncomfortable for the horses Um, we don't see closing of venues or or things like that but is there anything an owner should be considering with traveling to an effective state should that come into the thought process or because it's still relatively mild amongst equine diseases just do your best do good biosecurity um, and go forward
1: well, I think every horse owner in the face of a, of a VSV outbreak in the U.S. should be very careful and they need to make some timely decisions about whether or not they're going to go to a show, especially in a county that currently is having an outbreak and we post on the USDA APHIS website um, at least once a week and sometimes more frequently, we post a situation report for vesicular stomatitis where you can see all of the affected counties and when they broke and how many cases they've had so that you can make some timely decisions on whether or not you wanna take your horse into that outbreak zone. If you choose to go, your vector mitigation to keep the flies off your horse is extremely important. And this is very difficult. You know, keeping flies off horses, we've all been challenged by it, even in a non-vesicular stomatitis outbreak year. Keeping flies off of horses is really hard, and there's never just one thing you do that will do it. You have to have a lot of different mitigations in place to protect your horse from flies. And that's where it becomes challenging. So if you can't do that, or if you're concerned that you won't be able to do that level of vector mitigation to protect your horse, you probably ought to rethink whether or not you should be traveling to an outbreak zone right at that time. But to keep
0: in mind again, the the primary vectors, and and I want to go back over those just a little bit. So you talked about the, the biting midges, the, the black flies, which I don't think most horse owners are as familiar with. And there was a third insect that was a primary vector.
1: Yeah, sand flies are another vector, which are only seen in certain areas of the country, but um, where we have sandy regions or um, you know burrows of rodents, uh, the sand flies will breed there too. So mostly black flies and the biting midges are the, the main species that most horse owners have probably seen on their horse. Um, and for black flies, They're very difficult to distinguish on site from stable flies or other types of biting flies. And so what you're really attacking is any type of biting fly on your horse. You're not being specific to just the black flies.
0: Okay. And again, we have several podcasts available (laughs) to to let listeners know all of the different strategies that are effective um, from our our talks with some entomologists uh, and best practices. So is there anything that we're missing that um, horse owners really need to know? Definitely if you suspect something, call your vet, maintain good hygiene because we don't want you to get this and to feel bad and especially in the midst of COVID. Yeah, any other final tips or thoughts that, that our typical horse owner really needs to understand about this virus?
1: Yeah, so just awareness of where the disease is and where it isn't. And this is something that you wanna keep up with for many different equine infectious diseases, right? Not just vesicular stomatitis. Um, So there are a lot of resources out there. The Equine Disease Communication Center uh, is a website you can go to that you can get uh, equine disease alerts from that are pushed to your phone or to your email to tell you when we have these types of diseases in certain regions of the country so that you can be aware. Um, But your awareness as you're traveling around and moving with your horse for all these different diseases that they might encounter is really important. And it's probably something that many people don't think of when they're planning a trail ride that's a few hours away or something like that. So um, make sure you keep up with your, your disease awareness all the time for equine diseases. Certainly the biosecurity that you should be doing at a minimum standard all the time with your horses when you travel is important in this as well and then that vector mitigation and protecting yourself if you're handling region horses are all really important factors.
0: And I, I guess I would put my, my personal plea for everyone to understand that this is important and we really do need to be on the same page and not just say, oh, well, my horse is gonna get better and not report it because we, we collectively need this information.
1: That's correct. Other horse owners need to know if, if there's an outbreak that's happening in your neighborhood and in your region because If there's only a few cases here and there, we might not otherwise know if you didn't do your duty and call it in. Um, So that's really important that we're um, sharing information, that we're keeping the awareness and that we're being transparent about where the disease is and where the disease isn't so that people can take the proper precaution. Okay.
0: Well, I uh, certainly appreciate your time. It must be a a busy time for you then (laughs) if you're having to give a lot of advice about VSB and uh, all the other diseases that come up. So do you only uh, cover horses or do you have to do multiple species with your position?
1: So in my career, I've done a lot of different species, but um, I do only equine species now, which is wonderful. I'm, I'm a Uh, an equine veterinarian by training. And so this is uh, more in line with with my history and and what I enjoy. But I've done poultry diseases and cattle diseases and if anybody asked me to do swine, I might quit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I agree. But, uh, <laughs> but I have dealt with a, a number of other species. As an epidemiologist, it doesn't really matter which species. If you know um, about diseases, if you know about infectious disease spread, you can really apply your knowledge uh, base to any disease and any species. If you if you learn a little bit.
0: So are there uh, any other equine diseases right now that uh, we need to have on our radar? I know for me, just because I'm in the, the region of vesicular stomatitis, is, that's sort of the only thing I've been thinking about. But
1: tell us more. What else should we worried uh, about right now? <laughs> yeah. So um, cases that I get almost every week are cases of equine pyroplasmosis and cases of equine infectious anemia. Um, and right now those are actually being spread by poor biosecurity, which is something that we can all have a hand in and that's something that we can correct. Um, our problem with uh, EP and EIA right now is mainly in quarter horse racehorses. Um, and it's in quarter horse racehorses that may be participating in bush track or illegal racing. Um, there's blood doping involved that spreads both of these diseases. Um, there's reuse of needles and syringes, reuse of IV sets. It's very damaging to uh, and dangerous for our equine population to have these diseases that really shouldn't be here. Um, EIA and EP are uh, endemic in Mexico at very high levels, and they're not endemic here in the US. Um, Our EIA status is at a very, very low level of infection. It's 0.004%. It's tiny. We've almost essentially eradicated EIA. But this influx of movement, illegal movement from horses from Mexico and this blood doping and spread in the quarter horse race industry is causing a resurgence of the disease that we've spent 40 years working so hard to get rid of. And pyroplasmosis comes with it. Pyroplasmosis is a foreign animal disease that we should not have. Um, We do not have natural tick-borne spread of pyroplasmosis like many countries do. And so having these diseased horses here actually affects our ability to keep it out of the country and stay uh, clean from that disease. So it's, it's important.
0: Oh my goodness. I think I'm afraid I
1: asked that question. (laughs) So
0: so I I think I want to go back. And now that I have you here, we might uh, chat with that a little bit because when you were talking about biosecurity and EIA, I was like, what the heck? It's not biosecurity, but it wouldn't, Honestly, even enter my mind to reuse a needle on a horse. Like that's just been drilled into me since forever that clean needle every time we don't share. We certainly wouldn't share IV sets. So, is this a whole new world that I was not even aware of that this is common practice?
1: This is happening. And unfortunately, you know, it's we've spent the last five or eight years or so trying to reach out to these types of folks in this industry. To make it clear that they have to use a clean needle and a clean syringe every time um, and unfortunately they still haven't got past the reuse of that one rubber iv set that they use on all the horses <laughs> and so when when we get in the tack room and an infected premises with either eia or puro or both sometimes it's dual infected horses which is really catastrophic um we'll walk into the tack room they'll have a, a brand new box of needles a brand new box of syringes they've got the first message and they have this one rubber IV set. And we hold it up and we say, is this your only one? And their face just falls. And they said, oh, is that a problem? It is, because every time you use that set, you get blowback of the blood into the tubing. And unless you're sterilizing that tubing, which most people at home cannot do, you you don't, you're you're transmitting to every other horse after that. So we also have people who double dip into multi-dose drug vials. And the blood from your needle has now contaminated that vial, and now it's Russian roulette. Every time somebody goes to stick a needle in that, they might be transmitting EIA or pyroplasmosis or anaplasmosis to their horse.
0: So, uh, this has been a few years ago, and I, I will not disclose who it was, um, but I did actually witness a, a, vet- a veterinarian that was reusing needles doing Coggins tests. And at the time, I was horrified. (laughs) Um, and that's exactly what you're talking about, right? So they would just rinse it in a bucket of water, but no, no, not going
1: to do it. Don't do it. So the natural transmission of EIA is biting flies and, and it actually is, uh, usually horse flies or stable flies. Um, but it, it takes quite a bit of virus on those mouth parts to transmit from horse to horse. And when you look at how much virus is on a fly's mouth parts versus how much virus is on the tip of a needle, the tip of a needle is 15 to 20 times greater amount of virus just on that tip than the fly. So it's very easy to transmit. And people who are not thinking and maybe not paying attention can easily transmit bloodborne diseases of, of any type. But pyro and EIA are, are both a problem right now. And, and again, they're diseases that we really shouldn't have. Where are those showing up? So the quarter horse racehorses, um, we have about um, 11 different states right now that have pyroplasmosis testing, in addition to EIA testing, to enter the racetrack. And that's been really helpful. That's our surveillance. We do need more tracks in the US testing, however. Um, We have done testing a number of years back in the thoroughbred population and they are very clean. We are not finding a problem in our thoroughbred racing population. This is specific to quarter horse racehorses. And in many cases, either the owners or the trainers have been involved in bush track racing or have some connection to Mexico and illegal movement of horses coming from Mexico that have these diseases. So those are some high risk things. But as you know, horses change hands a lot in quarter horse racing they may have six or eight or 10 different owners by the time they're three or four years old. And as the horse moves through all these people and is handled by all these people, um, things can happen to infect that horse that the next receiving person may not know ever occurred. So even in sanctioned quarter horse racing, we find PIRO and EIA positives in that population. Um, from this type of overlap between the sanctioned and the unsanctioned racing or just the people involved that are handling and managing horses. So it's devastating. This has been eye-opening for me.
0: (laughs) And uh, again, I'm the equine extension specialist in Oklahoma, and I don't, I guess I was naive. Again, I just...
1: Well, by the way, in your state, um, from 2010 to about 2014 or 15 or so, Oklahoma did have a puroplasmosis test requirement to enter the racetracks for quarter horse racing. They disbanded that requirement, and it's not a current requirement. Um, But all their surrounding states have a requirement. So I'm finding cases of puro and EIA from Oklahoma by having that test requirement in surrounding states. So it's really dangerous because um, it's a liability, in my view, for the tracks. If the racetrack does not require a Piro and an EIA test, both tests, then you're going to have infected horses coming on and racing, and that's a liability. If someone points to that track and says, you didn't keep it out, I'm going to sue you because my horse got it. I think you're the reason. There's nothing they could say or do. They did not protect themselves. We also do not want to quarantine an entire racetrack for a single case where nobody can move that would be a disaster. So racetracks, in my view, really need to get on board with having a test requirement for this. It's very simple. The test is like $17 for a pyro test. They already have an EIA test requirement. They can both be done at the same time. Um, so this is really simple, and it's something that, um, while they implemented it long ago, they disbanded it, and it's still really needed. It's, it's a risk.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like it. So I'll, I'll have you, I had nothing to do with getting rid of the rules.
1: So. <laughs> well, and your, and your state veterinarian is a strong proponent that we need that PURO test requirement in place and he's not been able to get it done either.
0: Well, maybe I'll go give him a pat on the back and say, go Rob,
1: go. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Tried really hard. I, I think it's the Horsemen's Association who thinks it's not necessary, um, but I'll prove to them it's necessary. Every time I find a pyrro positive, uh if it was racing in oklahoma at the time i knew it was infected i'm going to be sending those traces to oklahoma every time to say look this one was infected and it was running right here at remington here you go
0: (laughs) oh wow yeah i (laughs) this this has been a really good conversation for me um but certainly uh i i will you know do my part and continue to press the message of hygiene and clean needles and not going into multi-use bottles or, you know, yeah. multi-series bottles. So that's uh, some simple things people can do to limit that spread.
1: Yeah. Some people just don't think about it.
0: Well, I appreciate your time. This has been uh, really, really enlightening. I hate it. Is it... Oh, don't tell me anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so
0: you're yeah, there are a lot of it. other <laughs> diseases
1: I work on, Chris. I don't know. Just you know, pick pick your topics and then we'll hit one each time. Okay. That's what most people do with me. Just, yeah. Sounds good.
0: I pick, guess I pick should pick the disease du
1: jour and we'll do that one or whatever. Perfect.
0: Well, I would absolutely love to have you back um, sometime My if pleasure. you're willing to chat about some more diseases.
1: Anytime. Uh, infectious diseases are, are really important to get out to, uh, to our horse owners and they're probably a little bit um, underrepresented in the horse health issues that they hear about all the time. So. Okay.
0: Well, we'll do that. And we'll put the links to uh, the updates on VSV and the EDCC on the website, as well as reference some of our uh, biosecurity webinars uh, that are out there um, and our insect podcast as well to make sure our horse owners are informed um, and really able to limit disease. Yep.
1: Yeah. And you want to have them um, probably go to the um to on the USDA website to the actual sit rep that I produce um, each week because I'm reporting both suspect and confirmed cases. And EDCC um, has some very specific requirements that they're only reporting laboratory confirmed cases. So, um, you know, as we go forward, we're going to be not testing a lot of horses that are in a positive county. We're just going to be calling them a suspect because they have lesions and we assume that they're infected. They probably are but we may not be spending all the time and money in testing them anymore. And it, it sort of changes the scope, right? So EDCC last year reported that I had like 480 cases of vesicular stomatitis, I had 1144. So it, it misrepresents the picture just a little bit, but I understand what they're doing. They wanna make sure that it's laboratory confirmed before they report it. So going to the original source of the rep is probably what will help people get the scope of what's actually going on. Perfect.
0: Well, if you send me uh, that link, I'll get that embedded again and make it super simple for people uh, to find that and that knowledge is power. (laughs) So stay up to date. Well, again, really appreciate your time. Um, So again, everyone, this has been Dr. Angela Pezell-McCluskey with the USDA and APHIS and our equine epidemiologist. But that has been our Tech Box Talk for Stories with a Purpose. Thanks, Chris.